Uh, so far, we've got a wealth of material. And, I, you know, the thing I think that, really in, uh, that I'm really oppressed with with you folks is how hard you guys are really working at all of this. I really believe that most of you, if, if not all of you, uh, really want to build that relationship with God that you, you really need to have. You know, we've been talking about how to have a victorious Christian life. What well, have such a, a foreign term today in the world that we live in, in the Christian world that we live in. We talk about a life that helps you in your, with your raising your children. And that's why I want to have so much material available and I want, to, I want to have everything that I can at your fingertips to help you with your children, help you with your marriage. You know, uh, it, it's just, uh, it's, it just really, really uh, uh, will be a benefit that, uh, that we want to help you get to the point in your life where you can live above life circumstances. You know, I've never seen a time in, in my ministry in almost 40 years now where Christians have been so bombarded and just so, uh, you know, overwhelmed with things. I want to help you today as best I can. And I want to, I want to every time we come to Romans 6, I told you, every, it just gets better and better as far as I'm concerned, as far as, you know, things that God shows us. And yesterday, you know, we... We started our ladies' classes, and that was, that'll be a great benefit to you of helping you. Uh, you know, in a week, we're going to talk about soul-winning classes and help get you ready to, to take a part of this ministry and help you move up to the next level. But I want to I start reading today in verse 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, and 23, another segment here. And uh, I want to talk to you about uh, this victorious Christian life. Now, it says in verse 18, Being then made free from sin... You became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanliness and to iniquity, and into, uh, to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof that ye now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being uh, made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Father, <clears throat> we thank you and praise you for all that you do for us. And Lord, I love you. And I ask you today, Father, to take these, these principles, take this great passage of Scripture, and Lord, help us today. I, I believe these people, Lord, really love you. And I, I believe, Lord, that most of them, if not all of them, really want to have the victorious Christian life. And help us, Lord, as we look to this passage. Help me in everything that I do to be a better pastor. When I meet with them one-on-one -on -one and help them through the Bible, help me to give them my undivided attention. Help me never to be in a hurry. Help me never to, uh, Lord, uh, not listen. Help me always to take and be, let their problems become my problems, that together we may solve them through the Word of God. I pray, Father, as I always pray, and I pray this every day, that you'll take men in this church and raise them up to be strong spiritual leaders, that you'll take the women of this church and help them grow up to be everything that God wants them to be as mothers and wives and, and Christian women, that the older women, Lord, can take the younger ones and teach them like we saw yesterday. Now, Lord, I, I just thank you for, for the st stability of our church, for the men and the, and the ladies, Lord, who know the Bible, that they're not fooled. They know what the Word of God says. Help us to continue to grow and help today to be a, a benefit to them. 
And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for our sake we ask it. Amen. You know, I wish that I could tell you today that the Christian life won't have any downsides or any valleys to it. But of course, that would not be true. Bible's very clear that, and I've always looked at it this way. Uh, I may lose some battles in life. I have, and I'll continue to lose some, and so will you. We may lose some battles in life, but the great news today is that the war has already been won. The war has already been paid for. The battle's already been won, and everything that God needed to do has been accomplished for you and I to have the victory. And today, it's going to be a very basic outline today. It's going to basically be your traditional three-point outline. Uh, we have been talking about IDing the problems that you have. Remember I told you that, that you, you'll, never, you'll never solve your problems till you admit to the problems that you have. You'll never solve your problems or fix your problems till you see the problems you have, and then you have to attack that problem. You have to quit putting it aside that this is really not my problem, I really don't have this problem, when you know deep down inside you do. And uh, you have to begin to uh, attack those issues, deal with those issues from the biblical principles of the Word of God. And to help you to do that, I have given you all kinds of easy ways to break down tough passages. You know, I myself, as someone who, who the Bible, uh, when I started out, was a very complicated book. And so I had to break it down where I could grasp it. And basically what I do for you is help you break it down just as I broke it down. And I gave you some key words now that you ought to have in your, in your repertoire or your vocabulary of, about the victorious Christian life. We talked about the word consistency, how important it is to be consistent. That's what I talked about when I said you may lose some battles, but you're going to win the war. That's consistency. We talked about the ability to know, to, to reckon yourself dead, and to yield your members unto righteousness. I explained some complicated terms like uh, baptism of Jesus' death. You should understand that now. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this morning, you know, a little, one of our little gals came up uh, and asked me uh, about a question, a very good question about the Holy Spirit of God and the, and the Holy Ghost. And it, just everybody on whatever level you are seemingly is grasping some great truth, and that's what it's going to take. We talked about the old nature and the new nature. We talked about how that you battle these things through your spirit with your flesh. And now today we're going to look at verse, this section here starting in verse 19. And, and basically, honestly, one of my favorite places in the Bible that helps me personally. You know, I know that people, you know, any pastor, people who preaches all the time and, and you know, and, and teaches Bible studies and works one-on-one, it just, it goes with the territory that, that some of you uh, think that, that I don't have any problems, you know, that I've got all the answers to life and that I don't, I don't struggle just like you do. And that's simply not true. I have the same issues that you have, uh, maybe on a different level, but certainly we all struggle with the same things. And there's places in the Bible that have been very profitable to me to help me in my own personal relationship with God. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's not even a biblical principle that you apply to your life. Sometimes it's just a concept that once you understand something about God, that it really makes a difference in your life. Thursday night, Thursday night, I think, was one of the best Bible discussions we had. And, 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 and you know, that was Thursday, this is Sunday. Between Thursday and, and which is Friday and Saturday, I probably have had 25 phone calls. Uh, and we talked about, uh, and, and not about the end of the world, because uh, that got thrown in there too, but about talking about your relationship with Christ 
in the book of Song of Solomon. And you know, and, and, and I, I looked at that and I thought to myself, and God began to really work in my heart. And, I, and I'm praying about this and I want to see <clears throat> what God does. But I, I want to have at some point, and I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about, you know, on New Year's Eve, we always have a time where we spend some time in the Word of God together. And, uh, and then we have a meal together. We have the Lord's Supper and all of that stuff. And I'm really thinking about, <clears throat> I'm really thinking about <clears throat> that New Year's Eve that, you know, we get together and to start off the new year because you're all almost right where uh, you need to be for the most part. To take that night when we got about three or four hours where we can spend some great time. And I want to bring you through the book of Song of Solomon, not doctrinally, but from a practical application that you can start the new year by understanding how to have a relationship with God, that I can maybe break down some of those barriers for you, that you can get to God and you understand. I think that's most of God's people's problem. I think we're trying to have a relationship with somebody that we don't really know. Oh, you know Him as your Savior, but you've never got to the place in your life that you understand some of the great concepts about God. And I'm, I think I'm going to I'm going to work through some things. I'm going to look at some things. And I think that on that night, to take that, to start the new year, to give you a complete understanding and kind of a kind of a, like a, a syllabus that you could go through the rest of the year, rest of your life, and fine-tune that relationship that you need to have. Understanding how He looks at you. Understanding how you should look at Him. Understanding what He expects. Because I think many, many times, our expectations of what we think God has for us becomes unrealistic. I think many times in our relationship with God, we're our own worst enemy. I mean, I know we got the flesh and we got all of those external problems that we all struggle with, but once you get to a point in your life, you gotta, you got to understand God conceptually. you got to understand God in, a, in, a, in the basic concept that He is. Now, this morning, I want to give you one, and this is a great one to me. This helps me. Last week we talked about the aspect that, that uh, we get tagged with as being Baptist, uh, the aspect that uh, once we get saved, uh, we know that we can't lose our salvation. We believe in eternal security. The thing flying around, it always, everybody always says, well, you know what? You Baptists believe that once you get saved, you can live your life any way you want. And we talked about how that that's not true. That, yes, I'm saved eternally, and eternal uh, security is, is the key in my life uh, that, that is really the, the foundation of my salvation. But the bottom line is this. I don't want to sin. I, 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 every time I do sin, every time I disobey God, I do something against God, it grieves me terribly. You never want to come to the place in your life where you get where you can sin and it doesn't bother you because that is a very dangerous place to be in. And I want to talk to you today about a concept. I want to talk to you about one of my favorite places in the Bible that, that helps me personally. And it's very simply aimed at, at uh, it's very simple. It's very simple. It's not very profound, but it, I mean, it's, it is profound, but it's very simple. There's no theology to it. And it's simply aimed at every guy and every woman who wants to live for God and basically get to the point that you live above the circumstances. I thought it was funny in the last election. Do you ever notice how politicians always do this? They always want to identify with the common people, and yet they never do. So they'll pick out somebody that, that basically, you know, that they can make uh, like they're like them. In this case, it was our old friend Joe the plumber. 
Uh, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a strategic deal. I mean, Joe the Plumber got his 15 minutes of fame. He'll probably make a movie. I'm Joe the Plumber, you know. And yet Joe the Plumber represented just an ordinary guy. The politicians gravitated to him because uh, uh, they wanted to, they used him as a ping pong ball. Uh, one of the candidates wanted to show how the other, he thought the other candidate didn't really care for Joe the Plumber and was going to hurt Joe the Plumber. The other candidate wanted to show how he was going to help Joe the Plumber, and in reality, neither one of them were really going to help Joe the Plumber. There's only one thing that's going to help Joe the Plumber. That's that book in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know where Joe the Plumber is at with the Lord, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, if you think that you're going, to be able to, you're going to be able to trust the government no matter who's in power, uh, you're sadly mistaken. But you know what? In Christianity, we're all just Joe the plumbers. But what I'm about to give you is not something from some heretical hierarchy of the pastorship down there and throwing out things so you'll get like me someday, hopefully. And uh, uh, No, it's, I'm, I'm in the same struggle you are. I told you Thursday night that this, this church is like a lifeboat. If things go down the way it looks like they're going down, all we're going to have is each other. And the very person that you may have something against tonight, or the very person or today that you may have a problem with, may be the very person that, will, that, that God will uh, have you lean on. And if there's ever a time that we as a church need to pull together and understand where we're at and realize that this is a lifeboat and everybody has to have an oar in their hand, and we reach as many people as we can, but at the same time, we have to take care of each other because that's where we're at. There's some tough times coming. And uh, what I want to give you today is, is something that really helps me. Uh, this is a great, this verse starts, a great concept starts with a statement in verse 19. Look what he says. He says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. You know the thing that, always impressed me about God, and I didn't understand this or didn't grasp this till probably maybe 10, 12 years after I was really saved and in the Bible. You know, you go through a process and you learn things and you make dumb mistakes and you get up and you keep moving and you grow and you learn and you do things for God and God shows you and then you begin to work with people and that has another whole dimension to it. And one of the things that I've come to the conclusion with, it is such a, it's such an incredible concept for you to grasp. I know it is for me. Is the concept that God understands what we're struggling with today. I think sometimes we get the idea that God is up here, and He is, and we're down here, and we are, and God is so holy and righteous that He has no, he has no compassion for what we're going through. Let me say something. God understands your struggle today. Some of you struggle with things in your life, and very honestly, you want to change your lifestyle. Some of you have issues in your life that you're standing all by yourself on, and it's tough. Some of you have personal issues of things you've got to get past in your life, and it's tough. And sometimes we, we, when we don't have a handle on it the way that we should, we get a defeatist attitude. We think, ah, well, I screwed up again. Why should I continue on? Or we get our nose out of joint about, uh, towards something else or somebody else when in actuality we have our own issue we have to deal with. And the thing that was the greatest comfort to me that I've ever really had in my life as a child of God is the fact when he says, I speak after the manner of men. God knows what kind of people we are. And God takes me where I'm at. 
and will help me get from where I'm at. He never condemns me from where I'm at as long as I'm trying to do better in my life and get to where God wants me to be. I think Psalm chapter 39, verse 5 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. It says, Behold, thou hast made my days as a hand breath, just a short time, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Boy, that's so true. We think because we learn a little Bible, we think because we know some concepts or we work with people, we think because maybe we're a good disciple or a good preacher, we think because that we, uh, we, have, we have some Bible knowledge uh, that, that sometimes we get the idea, you know, that, that, that we're better than other people. Sometimes we get the idea, you know, that I'm up here and you're down here and oh, the day you'll be so happy today you become, become like me. Bible says, man, that his very all the best state is altogether man. And you notice he threw the word in there, altogether. Altogether. Vanity. Psalms chapter 78. You don't have to turn back to it today. I, I, I would like you to read this chapter this next week. Oh, Psalms chapter 78 is the great chapter on the old, in the Old Testament. And it shows basically from a historical standpoint where Israel loses the kingdom of heaven. Psalms chapter 78 uh, fits into uh, the great uh, time when God says, I've had it with Israel, and God puts them on the back burner and casts them off temporarily. But it's a great passage. And it's one of the most awesome, tender passages in all the Bible for me because I look at it and I understand that God is talking to Israel uh, historically, but I also know that it, it applies to me. Because just as Israel was God's child in the Old Testament as a nation, I'm God's child today as an individual because of my commitment to Christ. I wish I could read it all today, and I, I, I don't have time to do that. And it's a very, in fact, it's the longest chapter in Psalms. It goes on forever. But it's one of the greatest chapters. But in, in understanding, at, when he says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, in, in understanding what I'm saying, how God recognizes where you're at, and many times you're harder on yourself than God will be on you. I want to read just a, a portion of this, starting in verse 30. Now he comes down through here and he talks about how that basically, here's the gist of this passage. So when you read it this week, he talks about how God has done everything for Israel. God had a plan for the nation of Israel and he orchestrated everything in their life. It, when you read this, it's kind of like a history lesson of where God has brought Israel from. And what he basically says is, you know what? I allowed these things to happen in your life. I put these things in your life because I was going to bring you through them. And I was going to be there for you every step of the way. I gave you everything that you needed. I took care of you and every need that you had. And basically in verse 30 it picks up and he says, but they, talking about Israel... They were not estranged from their lust. Estranged mean put away or away from. But while their meat was in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this they still sin, or sin still, and believe not for his wondrous works. Therefore their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God their redeemer. Watch this. Nevertheless, 
they did flatter him with their mouths, and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Now that's, if, if, if there's any picture of you and me today, that's it right there. If there's any picture of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, which, by the way, is a great similitude of what you and I are and what we go through, this is the passage. But if there's any place in the Bible that shows the way you and I are with God, boy, this is it. And yet, look at verse 38. But he being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. Why? Why? Why did he call them to be his holy nation? And yet, when they kept turning his back on them, when he kept doing what was wrong, when they would not get away there from their sin, when they lied to him and they flattered him with their lips, but they lied to him with their tongues and their heart was not fully after them, why did he still have compassion? Next verse is your answer. Oh, yes, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and cometh not again. Paul says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. And I want you to understand this today. God understands what you're struggling with. God understands where you're at. Many times, as I said, um, we're, we're harder on ourselves than God is. God knows and sees your heart. God reads your thoughts. And God, I've told you before, the Bible is the only book in the world. When you begin to read it, it begins to read you. You see, you can lie to me. You can fool me. You can pretend that you're one thing when you're not. You can, you can pretend you're spiritual and have all kinds of issues inside, but the one person you cannot hide from is this book and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all have our issues in life. We all struggle in life. And I watch some of you in your struggles, and I watch some of you who are basically all alone. Your husband's not saved, and, uh, and you're by yourself, and you're trying to do the best you can do. You're at a disadvantage on one side because the Bible says that, you know, your husband should be the spiritual leader, and you don't have a spiritual leader. In many cases, I'm your spiritual leader, or this church is, and in that sense, and, and you, it's, it's kind of not the way God intended it. And I know sometimes you struggle with that. I know there's times probably when you feel like, why should I continue on? Why, you know, why, why wouldn't I give up? It just seems like everything I do, it doesn't turn out the way that, that, that God wants or the way it should. And I, why am I continually in this struggle? I understand that. I understand that, that there's some of you out there that are in, with personal things in your life. You have an issue you're trying to get past. I understand that. Now, none of this is a license to go on and do it. You know, when, you know when you'll get through and stop whatever in your life is really your, your, your hindrance? You know when, when you'll get past it? It's so clear. You will stop whatever in your life that is keeping you from being used of God at only one point in your life, and that is when you hate it as much as God does. When you get so sick and tired of the sin that does so easily besets you, that you just, you just are marking time. You're not going anywhere. You're not doing anything. 
And this, when, when you see others getting around you, moving ahead of you, and doing things that you want to do, but this, whatever it is in your life is not going to allow you to do that. You're going to come to the place where you hate it so desperately because it becomes the thing that not just steals away your millennial inheritance. It becomes the single thing that stops you from being effective with God. But God understands, folks. Kids, I'm going to tell you. For he remembered that they were all but flesh. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. In the midst of their disobedience, in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their constant battles within themselves, God remembered that they were flesh and had compassion. You need to understand that. I'm not saying that as a license for your sin. I'm saying that so you don't beat yourself into oblivion with some issue you're trying to work through as long as you're trying and you're doing what God wants you to do. Now, if you're not doing what God wants you to do, then my verse for you is, is Job chapter 9, verse 4. It's a great verse for you. You know what it is? It simply says this, Who have hardened themselves against him and prospered. Now, this verse in verse 19, going back to Romans 6 now, Understanding that great concept says, after the manner of men, the infirmity of your flesh. Now, I told you this was going to be a three-port outline today, and I, I want to I take this time that we're in Romans here. And in the Bible, you'll find three infirmities that you and I have. This is the three-point outline. You'll find three infirmities that you and I struggle with. These are the struggles that we have constantly. In these three areas lies the battle for you and for me. If you are willing in time to recognize these three things in your life, <clears throat> if you willing, are willing in time to define these three things in your life, if you are willing in time to attack these things in your life, uh, and then you're on your way to a victorious Christian life. And many of you already are. <clears throat> and that's why I'm telling you, don't get so hard on yourself. There'll be things you have to change. Hey, there'll be things you have to change that you don't want to change. It's okay as long as in time you change them. God doesn't matter when you argue with Him as long as to the end of the day He wins. We think that <clears throat> to argue with God is some blasphemous thing. You don't know very much about God. You should have saw Moses and God go at it. You should have saw Abraham and God go at it. You should have saw Jacob and God. Jacob and God got down to fisticuffs. They were wrestling in the ground. Those things in our lives are how you build the right relationship. God doesn't want a robot. God wants to hear what you think. You can tell God what you think even when it's wrong as long as at the end of the day you come back around and say, yeah, you're right. That's part of the building of the process. I think many times we think we can't have a good argument with God. Boy, you watch Moses, he did. Job did. You know what Jeremiah said one time? <laughs> he quit the ministry. Him and God had a conversation because he, he wasn't getting out of it what he thought he should get. And Jeremiah just flat quit. You ought to see what happened between God and Jeremiah once he quit. A real relationship with God is one that you and God speaketh face to face like a man speaketh with a friend. And you'll find in your Bible three infirmities. And when you define these, you recognize these, and, and you 
you're going to lose some battles along the way, but bless God, we're going to learn to win the war. Now, the first one here is right here in verse 19. We already talked about it. We've been talking about it for three or four weeks now. It says, after the manner of man, the infirmity of your flesh. We've talked about it. We're not going to spend a lot of time with this one because we have nailed this one down just about everywhere it goes. <clears throat> we've talked about the infirmity of your flesh. We've talked about the issues of your flesh, how that the Bible says that you were to crucify it. Paul said, I die daily. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God who lived me and gave himself for me. We've talked about that. We've talked about Romans uh, 6, reckoning yourself dead. We define reckoning, focusing on a focal point, and then moving toward that point. We've talked about that. We've talked about it for weeks now, every aspect, the best I could lay it out. We talked about the old man and the new man. But in dealing with your flesh, I want to give you another great principle today. <clears throat> I want to show you another verse that you can put on your 3 by 5 card. It's in Romans chapter 7, verse 1. You don't have to turn to it because I know you're trying to write it down unless you want to, but I'll read it for you. Romans chapter 7, verse 1 is a great verse in dealing with the infirmity of your flesh. <clears throat> Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Now that's why I encourage you to get promises down on three-by-five cards. That's why I love to get those little books back there, whether it's for the mothers or there's some back there for just problems you get into as Christians, and I give them out all the time. You have to begin to learn biblical principles. You have to begin to put those in your life. Everybody's looking at me. What did I do? Huh? It's not what? What did I say it was? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 7 1. Well, you know what? First time I've been wrong in my life. It had to come sooner or later. <clears throat> I mean, I'm 58 years old and I got by so far without it, but he caught me today. 2 Corinthians 7 1. You know what? It's when you're preaching and you know you do something stupid. The looks on your face say, Bob, you just did something stupid. <laughs> now, that's a good thing. I've been in places. I've been in places where I, I told a story completely out of whack, completely wrong, just to see if they were paying attention. I preached a, I, I told a story one time when I was you know, preaching in the church, and I told them how that, that Noah... You know, that Noah, uh, that Adam, uh, the, the Bible says that Adam, Adam was, uh, you know, got his wife. <coughs> and when he got his wife, you know, and I turned it over there and I, a couple of pages stuck together and I got into Genesis chapter 6. And it said, and, and, and God brought the woman down to Adam and it got over to Genesis about the ark. And it said, and she was 144 cubits wide, 200 cubits. And honest to God, somebody said, amen. <coughs> <coughs> so that's good. You're paying attention. I'm loving it. <clears throat> Keep me honest. <clears throat> Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting ourselves in the, holy, in, in the fear of God. Psalm 119 verse says, They wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way. See? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. 
Thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, verse 11 and verse 9. And uh, the, it says down here that perfecting yourself, uh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You notice, you and I, other, and as far as our flesh is concerned, will never be holy. But there's a perfecting process in your life day after day after day after day. We've talked about it. It's knowing God and knowing how God looks at you. It's reckoning yourself dead, yielding yourself, becoming honest with yourself, coming to the end of self through consistency, applying what this church does for you. And that's why, uh, you know, I put so many of you, and my wife does too, and she works with you. We've done it for years, those little three-by-five cards. <clears throat> that's why I push those little books back there. They, every time you have a struggle, because you don't maybe know the Bible well enough yet <clears throat> to go find what you need. But until you learn how to use the Bible, and it's only, a, it's only a crutch, it's only a wheelchair to your leg heels, it's only something that temporarily till you learn how to use the Bible. But when it comes to your flesh, he says, Therefore, having these promises, dearly beloved, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting ourselves. Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we have a great familiar verse. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. Perfect. Not sinlessly perfect, but perfecting yourself from the flesh and the spirit. Why? Because you and I have an infirmity in the flesh. That's our first infirmity. And that infirmity is going to keep you from ever doing what God wants you to do till you get on top of it instead of it being on top of you. And the only way you're going to do it is to hide the Word of God in your heart that, that you may not sin against Him. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto. Taking heed means not only taking it, but heeding it, doing what it tells you to do. Okay, Hiding it into your heart. Now, the second infirmity is found again in, in the book of Romans, but it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. I got my fingers crossed, I hope. No, it is, 8, 26. <clears throat> and this one says this, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, this second infirmity is the fact that we really don't know how to pray. Now, I'm going to get into this in great, great detail when we come to Romans chapter 8. But suffices for what we're talking about today. Let me, let, me, let me talk to you about it a little bit. Let me talk to you about your prayer life. I read a book one time called The, the uh, Power of Prayer. And I thought on my life, I don't have much time anymore, <clears throat> but if I was to write a book on prayer, my title would be, my new book would be The Powerlessness of Prayer. Because never in a time in the history of the world has God's people been so powerless. And never in a time has God's people been so uh, not knowing how to pray. Now, if you're a young Christian here, let me just say this to you. <clears throat> young Christians get a lot of grace with God. You really do. Young Christians, God cuts you a lot of slack because He knows where you're at. You know, the farther you get up the ladder, the more He requires of you. And after a while, if you stay a young Christian, then, you know, then you got another set of issues. But if you hear somebody this morning and you say, well, Bob, I've been coming now, <clears throat> I've been saved, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. I'm not, I don't, I don't mean how, I didn't say how long you were saved. I've met people that were saved for 25 years that were still baby Christians. 
I've had people that came to this church that were saved 15 years and come to me after one Bible study and said, I don't even know what you're talking about, but you got what I want. Uh, you know, I, I don't know nothing about what you talked about today. And they should have been able to teach the class if I, something would have happened to me. So there comes a point in your life that it doesn't matter when you got saved. That's not the issue. The issue is, the issue is knowing the Bible and being a young Christian. And God cuts you a lot of slack. I believe it's the reason why God brings you here. I believe everybody gets a shot at what they need to do by God bringing you here and giving you the truth. You have to do with it what you have to do with it. But that's what God does. That's what God always does. He was a true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. God has something he wants you to do. So he puts you in a place where you have to decide are you going to do it or are you not. And that's the way God works. It's the way he always works. But the second infirmity is simply this, ladies and gentlemen. We don't know how to pray. And God cuts us young, you young Christians a lot of slack. He doesn't cut me any slack, but he cuts you a lot of slack if you're a young Christian. If you're someone who really hasn't got into the Bible to the place yet. Now, I say you that now. Two years from now, if you're still here and we're still here, you won't be able to claim ignorance anymore. You won't be able to claim, well, I'm still a young Christian. You may still be a young Christian, but you'll be a young Christian still because you chose not to grow. You chose to put something else in the front of it. But I want to talk to you about your prayer life for a moment. We're not going to get into this to the depth. <coughs> the depth. Now, I'm just going to say a couple of things here. I'm asked this all the time on Bible study. <coughs> and don't get scared when I say this. This is not to scare you. People ask me, how in the world is the, is the, is the world going to explain the rapture of church? When millions and millions, because you always hear, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of people are going to disappear. And the question always comes back sooner or later when, when you get dealing with prophecy. How, how is the world going to explain a disappearance of, of billions of people? My question back to them is, what makes you think there's going to be billions? See, I live in the reality of understanding where we're at today in relationship where they were 200 years ago. Now, if the rapture would have happened 200 years ago, yeah, I'd say there'd be a lot of people. You know what my, my bottom thesis is? My bottom thesis is that very few people are truly born again and saved today. Now, I say that, and I say this, because I, see, I saw the terror in your eyes. Oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. No, I believe you are. Well, that guy over there, I'm not sure he is, but um, <coughs> I believe you are. You're in the best spot to get it. But I know what goes on in this world today, and more importantly, and this is what I want to teach you, I know what it takes for a person to be saved. We don't live in a world any longer where you can just give somebody a card and say, go pray this prayer and God will save you. We don't live in a world anymore where a pastor can stand up and have every head bowed and every eye closed and say, how many people are saved? 20 people, put your hands up right now. How many people are not saved? Just 20 of you. I'm, it's, play with me. Will you help me? I need you. How many, okay, you're not, how many people, I, how many people are not saved here today? Put your hand up. Okay, thank you. All right, now, and then he does this. All right, now just bow your head and pray after me. Hear God, and you go through the prayer. You know why he does that? He does that because he knows that if he gave the invitation, not all 20 of you would come up. He knows that. So he's going to play it safe and allow you to make the decision in your own seat. <clears throat> he has no idea what you're dealing with. 
He has no idea if you understand repentance. He has no idea if you understand the two things that it takes to have in your life to be saved. He has no understanding whether you know that or not. He thinks that as long as you raise your hand and say, I want to be saved, that's enough. Now, maybe there was a time in the history of the world when it was enough, when they still believed the Bible, had the Bible, and the Spirit of God was permeating this world. It's not enough now. And that's the problem. Now, I say that to say this. Prayer is the same way. I want this to be a very positive message today, and I don't want you to leave here on a downside of things. But when we get into Romans chapter 8, I've got a couple of weeks now, a couple of months to prepare you for this. I'm going to show you why. In the world that we live in, 99.9999999999% of the prayer of God's people never get out of the room. Now, I know I'm extreme. I know I'm an eccentric person. I think that's what it takes today in Christianity because Christianity is such a la-la land. I'm a Waldensian at heart. I'm a Lollard. I'm a Catherii at heart. I'm a Polysian in practice. And most of you don't even know what that is or what I'm talking about, but the bottom line is those are the people who understood prayer. Those are the people that understood how to win somebody to Christ. That's the, that's the true line that goes all down through the history of the true church. And when we get to it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you and help you understand how to be a better prayer warrior. Now, you realize that, <clears throat> that we haven't had any real classes on prayer. <clears throat> we haven't had any real prayer meetings. You've noticed that? We've been in here five years now. I haven't called up one prayer meeting. My mind is, what's the point? Because we got a lot of things to learn, but I want to teach you what real serious prayer consists of, how you can know that when you do it, you're on ground with God where He needs to be. Now, I say that saying that most of you young Christians <coughs> keep on praying the best you know how because God is blessing you and going to use you. I don't want to scare you off. I don't want to confuse you. <coughs> I'm saying as you're a young Christian the way you are now and you're just finding all this stuff out, you do however you do it and God will bless it. But there's coming a time when you're going, everything in the Bible has to get specific. You have to get specific. God requires you to learn the process behind the program. And it has to come in time or you just stay in that middle ground area and don't go anywhere. But right now you're doing great. You know there's two women in the Bible that the Bible says that are great? Only two. Yes, I know, ladies, you might say it's only women. That's true. Not for the reason you think of. Only two women in the Bible that the Bible says are great women. One is in Matthew chapter 15, and the other one's in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. Now, in, in Matthew, chapter, uh, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 15, this woman is great because of her faith, what she is. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8, this woman is great because of what she does. You see, inward, outward, like we've talked about, two examples of it. Now, now in both cases, both these women are nameless. They don't have any names. And there's a couple of reasons for that when you study what, why they're great. They don't have any names because most really great Christians, nobody knows who they are. 
The great Christians in this room this morning in this church are not the prominent people probably that you see. That's been my, my, and I put myself in that category. Uh, the, 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 The great unsung heroes of this church, the great people in this church or people that, that you would never suspect. You know why? Because they never tell you what they're doing. They just do it. These women are great, only two. One inwardly of what she is, the other one outwardly because of what she does. They're great because of the fact, and they're women because they're a type of the church, what you and I should be. Another reason why they have no name is because the Bible says the church is a what? A mystery. So they have no name. They're nameless, as most great Christians are to the world. Now, the one in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8 is, is great if you're a mother and you're raising children because it shows what a mother ought to provide outwardly for her children. It's also a great passage on what we as Christians, the body of Christ, should be giving to others. When I pattern my ministry... I pattern after 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8, because there's some things listed in there that represent what a ministry should be. And so when I years ago saw that and thought to myself, what I, when you come over and see me one-on-one, and you know I got a deal where you can come over anytime uh, one-on-one, and I'll work there, in my mind, these are the things. When I meet with you, when you talk with me, these are the things that in my mind that I know that I need to do to be a good woman in the sense of the bride of Christ. She's the type of the church. But in Matthew chapter 15, now, we got that one is, uh, that one, the first one in 2 Kings is outward, you see. But the one in Matthew chapter 15 is inward. And it shows us how to pray. A Christian will only be as strong as their prayer life. And we think that that means that if you pray a lot, that means you're strong. That's not true. Because we've already known now that most Christians pray a lot but their prayers never get out of the room because they don't understand the basis by which prayer has to start on. See? I'm going to help you today. I want to help you. I have been so impressed with you. I am so moved by you. I have never in all my years of ministry been more moved and more impressed with a group of people who seemingly want to do what God wants to do. And I, I want to move to that in everything that I do. Everything that I do. And this is a great study on prayer. Now, let me tell you this story here in Matthew chapter 15. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but, but let me tell you the story. Now, Jesus is out doing his, his miracle deals, and he's out there with the disciples. And the Bible says a woman of Canaan comes up to him. And this woman in Cana has a, has a problem. Her daughter is vexed with a devil, which is a problem. So now maybe you understand what's wrong with your teenagers, see? I mean, this is, I'll help you, I'll help you. Just kidding. But in this story, we have a picture of our prayer life. Because she has an issue, and in her life, the issue is valid. Just like when you go to God, in your life, your issue is valid. I'm not saying it is or didn't. And unfortunately, we're not going to get into the baseline of prayer today, so don't worry about it. Just continue on doing it the way you're doing it. God will bless your attitude of heart. But in time, when we get to Romans 8, I'm going to show you biblically how to pray. But don't worry about it now. 
Because God will bless this church under the, under the auspices of His grace because of where we're going and our attitude of heart of what we want to learn. He'll take care of you in spite of ourselves. He's done that for me for many, many years. But her coming to Jesus with her request is a picture of our prayer life. Now, the first time she comes would, would be, would be, uh, would be a, uh, like the first time you ask God for some issue in your life. You know what He does? Doesn't say anything to her. Doesn't say anything. The second time she comes, the second time he comes, he makes it a racial issue and insults her. He says, you're a Gentile. Why should I, why should I take the bread that is for the Jews and give it to some lowly Gentile? Woo! If that wasn't enough, the third time she comes, he goes after her gender. And he calls her a female dog. Does anybody want to raise your hand and tell me? No, don't, don't, don't do it. I'm sorry, I got caught away with myself a minute. Do I have to tell you what that is? That's the B word. Yeah, read it for yourself. I mean, don't take my word for it. First time she says nothing, nothing to her. The second time she comes up, he makes it a racial issue. And if that wasn't worse enough, the third time he comes up, he says he makes it a gender issue. Calls her a dog. And she's a female. Hello? Now, I have a note in my Bible right along this passage that says this. This is the day that Jesus was out of fellowship. I'm joking, of course. I always like places in the Bible where it seems like Jesus has a bad day. Because you know why? Because I have a bad day. And it makes me feel better when my bad day is when I can go a place and find out he had a bad day. But you know the truth of it is? He never had a bad day. You know the truth of it is? He's not out of fellowship here. You know what the great lesson is here, ladies and gentlemen? Anytime you fuck, write this down. Don't forget this. Get this. Oh, look at you. Go to work. Write this. I watched that one lady back there, didn't have a pen, ripped it out of that guy sitting next to her. <laughs> Anytime you find in your Bible where Jesus does something out of character of who he should be. I mean, how does this match up with 1 Peter 5:8? Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you, he threw under the bus. How does this line up with Psalms where it says, I'll be your very present time of help in a time of trouble? He didn't even answer her. Listen, any time in your Bible where you find Jesus doing something out of the ordinary of who he is, the great Savior, the one that cares, the one that I can cast all my care on, any time you find a place in the Bible where he gets out of sorts, out of character, does something that you wouldn't expect Jesus to do. Now, you'd expect me to do that, and I'd expect you to do that. But not him. Every time you find that, you've got a great place in your Bible where God is trying to show you something. He draws your attention to the great truth by the exaggerated circumstances as it appears. You need to learn that. There's about six places in the Bible. This is one of them. Because when you lay this out, you have a great study on prayer. And you have an answer to why we don't get our prayers answered 
in the time frame that we think we should. This is one of the greatest studies in prayer, and the Bible already said, this is our infirmity. We don't know how to pray. Now, I can't get into this the way I'd like to today because of time, but let me give you some things here. Five aspects in her life and this little story that you better have in your life when it comes to prayer. Chrissy, want me to wait till you get back? I'll just sing and dance for a while. I don't want you to miss this. Five things. Five aspects of our prayer life are found in here. <clears throat> the first thing we find here is <clears throat> the woman's position. She's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And this woman knows who she is. She knows she's a sinner. She's not coming to him puffed up or high and mighty. She's not coming to him demanding something. When she comes to him, she comes to him as a lowly sinner and an outcast. And she accepts every rebuke he gives her and basically says, Amen. 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 Every negative thing, she wasn't deterred. Well, we come to God and we go ask God for something. He doesn't give it to us in 15 seconds. We get mad at God. We get mad at this. The greatest thing about this woman or the first thing about her is her own position. She knew who she was. You know what she knew? She knew she didn't deserve anything. When you come to God, that ought to be the basis, the first thing you better have in your life. You don't deserve anything. Now I'll show you the second one. First one was position. Second one was perspective. She knows who she is, but she also knows who he is. Did you ever look at that passage in there? She starts off by saying, O Lord, thou son of David. Now that may not mean much to you, but to me it means a lot. Because when she says, O Lord, she's ascribing him to God. That's his deity. When she says, thou son of David, she's ascribing him as the son of man. You know what she's done? This little gal has outdone the scribes and the Pharisees in 15 seconds. She knows he's from God, and she knows he's God's man. She not only had her position right, she's a sinner that deserves nothing. She had her perspective right. She knew who he was. Those are very important. The third aspect was her purpose. The purpose was, was her daughter, vexed with the, with, with the devil. You know, she doesn't demand anything. You ever listen to people pray? Bless the food. God bless this. God Telling God what to do. God bless this. We like to tell God instead of asking God. That's a nice little thing we just fall into. When you look at this, her purpose. As far as I can see here, and as far as it's in the Bible, her purpose was right. Many times your purpose is right, but you still don't get the prayer answered in your time. We'll see that in a second. The fourth thing, we have position, perspective, purpose. Now we see persistence. Three times she's rejected, and she never gets upset. That's it. No wonder she's great. I've known people that asked God for something and didn't get it in 15 minutes or get it in the time they thought, and they're mad at God. She had a persistence. She had a persistence. 
She was going to stay with God no matter what. And every time she comes, and you, I don't have time to get into it this morning. You ought to see the time she comes. When she first comes, she says, she says, she comes to this, and he answers her nothing. You know what she does then? She sees the disciples. And you know what they're doing. They got the big bus, Jesus on tour. They're selling the books and the tapes. They're walking around with the crowd, and, and somebody are coming up and saying, are you one of his disciples? And he says, yes, I am. My name is, my name is, my name is Matthew. Uh, are you close to the Lord? Yes, I am. In fact, I'm really close to the rest of them, but you don't want to tell anybody that. But yes, you need anything, you let me know. I'll be your man to him. Yeah, yeah. And my name, hey, oh, yeah. And you, what do you need? I'll help you today. And what do you need? Oh, yeah, just tell me what you need. That's what they're out doing. She's obviously, from the story, whining around them, as only a woman can't. Okay, I was wondering where that was going to come from. And she's coming after them. She's, she's going to the disciples. She's saying, would you talk to him for me? Would you help him for me? Would you, would you, would you tell, my daughter is sick. I need, would you help him? Would you, 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 you know, I, I just saw you shake a hand with that guy. You said you were close to everybody else. Would you go up and talk to him? You know what they find? They finally come and they say, hey, Lord, would you do what she wants and send her away? They want to get rid of her. That's when he insults her. That's when he insults her. And then you know what she does? The Bible says she worshiped him. What do you do when God doesn't give you what you want in your time frame? What do I do in my life when I don't get what I want the way I want it? Oh, when he hit that one on the head, when he said we have an infirmity, we don't know how to pray. Then the fifth thing. We saw her position, her perspective, her purpose, her, her persistence, and now we see the real success and the real key was her promises. She just held him to his word. Now, in a moment, I'm going to show you four or five reasons why you don't get your prayer answered the way you need to or you think you need to. But first, we need to see the five things in her life. We saw her position, her perspective, her purpose, her persistence, and now her promises. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Bible, and, but back in the book of Proverbs, I, I know this lady. I, I, I know this kind of person. I have studied godly men and godly women all my life. Back there in that, in that bookstore, there's probably, I counted them up this morning, there's 25 autobiographies of great women and great Christians. There's one on Fanny Crosby. There's one on Wesley's wife. There's one on, on, on some of the greatest missionary women, Mary Schlesser, a missionary to the lepers. And, and, and I've studied their lives. I've seen what set them apart. And I've seen them in horrendous situations. I've read the great missionaries like Adonai and Judson. I think he's back there. The great missionaries of men who went to the field. Well, you know what? Some of them buried their wives. One of them was in Africa for 51 years, buried his wife and three of his children on the mission field. We have one little glitch in our lives and we're mad at God. You see the difference? You see what I mean by where they're at and where we're at? Back in Proverbs verse chapter 12, and I know this woman. Back in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 is a great verse. It's a great verse. And it says, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. That's a great principle. 
Now, all she had was an Old Testament. And I know what she's doing. She's persistent. She's persistent with the promises. And no matter what happens in your prayer time, you have something you hang on to till God comes through. Now, I'm going to show you why in a moment sometimes he doesn't come through. But you hang on with what he gives you, and that is the promises. Finally, did you ever notice a thing that broke this whole stalemate? The thing that he said, oh, woman, great is thy faith, is when he called her a dog. He called her a dog. He insulted her gender. He already insulted her race, and then he, he ignored her. But when, when, she, when she worshiped him, and she says, Lord, as oh, she, she says, I mean, I love it. She, the Bible says, and then she worshiped it. And she says, Lord, Lord, she's desperate. She's at the end of her rope. Two times she's come. Finally she comes and she says, she worships him. And she says, Lord, help me. What does he do? He said, you mean I should take the bread for the children of Israel and give it to a dog? What would you do at that point? I'll tell you what we'd have done long before we got to that point. When we would have asked him and we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't, uh, we, oh, hey, you know how goofy people are? I get goofy people to get mad at me because in a church down here, we walk in, I got a now thousand things. I walk by them and forget to say hi to them. They get mad and leave the church. <laughs> because they didn't speak to him. He don't like me. Well, you're right, but I'll be my best I can. To, no, uh, if they get mad at me for walking by and not saying hi to them, what will you do when God doesn't answer you? Give me a break. She says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And he says, you mean I'm supposed to take the bread that I got for the children of Israel and give it the dog, i.e. a female dog? You know what she says back? Here's what she does. Well, I'll tell you, I'm leaving this church. I'll tell you, I ain't ever coming. I'm, I'm going to change my religion. I'll tell you, I don't care. I'll, I'll never, never talk to you again. I ain't reading that Bible no more. Here it is. You said call upon me in the very time of trouble. I'm in trouble. I called. You called me a what? No. She says, true, Lord. True, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. At that point, it turned. You know what she said? Oh, it's a great study. You look at her position. She knew who she was. You look at her perspective. You look at her purpose. You look at her persistence. And then you look at the fact of her promises. You know what she did? When he said, am I supposed to take the crumbs to the master's table, and, uh, crumbs and, 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 and give them to the dogs? She says, yeah, I'm a dog. I'm a dog. But I'm your dog. You know what Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 says? It says, the righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. You know what she pulled on him? What you ought to pull on him. You see, God, sometimes God just sets you up to see if you're really paying attention in the book. Now, I haven't even given you the reasons why you don't get your prayer answered yet. But I'm going to tell you right now, sometimes God just wants to see if you're paying attention with the promises. She was, she was, she was. 
This woman's not as dumb as she looked. I don't know what she looked like, but she's, she, she's got it. Because when he said to her, you know what? You're a dog. She says, I am, aren't I? But I'm your dog. And if you're who you say you are, and I am a dog, then if you're as righteous as you claim to be, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 says, the righteous man must regard the life of his beast. How about it? 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 And he says, oh, woman, great is thy faith. It's the promises. Sometimes God wants to see if you're claiming the promises. Now, I don't mean this in a wrong way because we don't have to keep God honest because God is honest. But sometimes God wants to see if you're going to keep him honest. You know what that means for a child of God? That means that if you're going you're to keep the promises and keep being persistent, or you're going to let the, the no answer affect your attitude. You know, when it comes to God or it comes to Christianity, attitude is everything. You know what her attitude was based on? In the middle of adversity. Now, and, and let's face it, look at the situation she was in. There's no more immediate situation than a mother with her child. I mean, if it was like, well, Lord, my, you know, my car's burning oil. Can you fix it? <laughs> or if it was, Lord, you know what? The dishwasher's broke. Can you fix it? Those are things that we really don't care whether God fix or not. But don't let it come down to your child. Let your little child get 105 fever and the doctors say, we don't know what it is. Let your little child get a blood test that comes back and a doctor says, you know what, I don't want to scare you, but this could, be, this could be leukemia or this could be some blood disease. Let them tell you that and you won't know the test for a week. And see if you walk around like well, your dishwasher just broke or your tire's flat or you, you, you haven't been paying attention and you're way out in nowhere and you look down and your car's on empty and you forgot to get gas and then you pray that prayer, God, I know what a sticker says, 28 miles to the gallon. I need you to make it 40. <laughs> no, this was her child. There's nothing more precious to a woman than her child. And God doesn't even care. You know what else that tells you sometimes? When you, when you have a prayer request, sometimes God will always test you with what you say you love the most. Now, I don't mean this wrong, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's all part of growing up. We all have a tendency to love things in this world, even our children, more than we love God. Boy, that's a scary situation to be in. I'm just talking to you here this morning. I'm telling you, these are things that are personal for me. My first infirmity is my flesh. The second infirmity I have is I do not know how to pray. When I look at this dear woman who the Bible says she had great faith, her great faith was based on her ability to take something to God that meant more to her than anything else and then suffer the abuse of three times God saying no and insulting her twice. And her coming back and saying, yeah, I am, aren't I? But I'm your dog. And oh, by the way, Mr. Righteous Man, you ever read Proverbs 12, 10? Can I help you with this, Lord, son of David? Remember that verse? I'm a dog. <laughs> See? I'm a dog. Woof, woof. I'm a dog. I'm a dog. I'm a dog. But I'm your dog. And the Bible says, if you're as righteous as you say you are, you've got to regard the life of the beast. He says, great is thy faith. You got me. 
You know what that's what God wants? You know what he says in Malachi? He says, prove me. Prove me whether I'm God or not in your life. No, I don't have to prove that God's in my life. I, I, I'm not talking about that. But God, God, God sometimes allows needs to come into your life. You know what part of the growth process is in your life? God allowing needs to come into your life so God can come through for you and show you he's there. Now, we talked about the five aspects of our prayer life. Let's look at them one more time. Her position, she knew she was a sinner. Her perspective, she knows who he is. Oh, son of David. Oh, Lord, thou son of David. Her purpose, her daughter, vexed with the devil. Her persistence, three times she's rejected, and yet she hangs in there. Why? Because of her promises. Now, this is why, ladies and gentlemen, I tell you over and over and over and over again, you have to learn the principles, the promises of the Word of God. If you've been in this church three years, I'll give you the first two. If you've been in this church three years and you don't have a list of promises in your life tonight, today, this morning, wherever we're at, if you don't have those promises in your life, that's why you're not going where you're anywhere you're going. That's why three years from now you'll be right where you're at now. That's why when you don't get what you want or something doesn't go the way you want, your reaction is the fact that you just, you just, you get mad at God. You're mad at God. You're mad at God. And the truth of the matter is, it's the promises that you have to have. Now, I gave you five reasons or five, five uh, aspects of our prayer life. Now, let me, give you, let me give you five reasons why your prayer always doesn't get answered in the time you and I think it should. Now, remember now, we have an infirmity. We have an infirmity. And that infirmity is we don't know how to pray. We don't know how to pray. Now, let's look at this. Five reasons why it always doesn't get answered in your time. And these are not hard. It's not hard. Now, let me give you the first one. And the first one, my favorite. It's my favorite because it's, it's, it's my problem. And yet I know it, it'll become your favorite because I guarantee you it's your problem. You know why sometimes God doesn't answer it in the time frame that we want to? Let me tell you why. Because you and I aren't in charge anymore. There comes a time in your life and my life, we got to give it up, folks. Hey, you've been in charge all your life before you met Christ. How'd you do? And Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? You know what the mess you're in tonight? Or this morning? I keep thinking it's nighttime. <clears throat> the mess you're in this morning? Nobody got you in but you. If you have a problem this morning with drugs, or you have a problem with alcohol, or you have a problem with this or with that, or you have some problem in your life or some error in your life that you can't get victory over, I guarantee you one thing before we go any farther, I don't even know what it is. You caused by bad choices that problem you got. Nobody twisted your arm and made you do it. You looked at it, decided to do it, and then went right through the thing, and your being in charge is what got you in the mess you're in right now. Simple as that. And you know what? When you come to God and you have a problem in your life, God, God operates up on one concept. You're not in charge anymore. I am. And I'll do it my way. Oh, that just grates us. It just grates us. You're not in charge. Look what it got you. Look what it got you. Learning from mistakes is so absolutely vital. But you better learn one thing right now. One thing right now. 
it takes longer to fix it than it took for you to break it. I'm just telling it. It takes longer for you to get right something out of your life than it took for you to put it in. Because when you get it in, it attaches itself to your flesh. And it doesn't want to let go. And we pray to God and ask God to do this, ask God to take this, ask God to fix this, ask God to fix that. And you know what? You're not in charge anymore. You want everything to happen right now. I want everything to happen right right now. Oh, I know what we want to do. We want to sow our wild oats and then we're all going to pray for crop failure. See? No. 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 Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. And sometimes it takes a long time to clean up the mess. Well, we want it like that, and we want to order God around to do it right now. But that's what happens when we're in charge. You know what? If God came down and fixed every problem you got right now, and every problem I got right now, we'd never learn a thing from it. You know why this country is doomed economically? You know, I, your 401Ks, I don't know if you got yours yet. I told you a couple of weeks ago we got one and mine lost $12,000. I got one yesterday. Mine now has lost, and counting the 12 last time, $45,000. And that's pretty good for me because I only had 10 bucks in it anyhow. I got to be confused with somebody else. <laughs> I just hope it stays and comes back. You know what? You know why, you know why this country is doomed if no other reason? If the Antichrist wasn't on the scene and it wasn't the end of the world and we weren't there and the trouble in the Middle East and all of this stuff, and oh, hey, somebody, and I don't know who you are, somebody is sending our Thursday night CDs to Fox News. Thank you. I don't know who's doing it. They're now using our Thursday night Bible study as a critique of world events. What did I tell you last week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? I told you that Israel was going to whack Iran before the president got in. And this morning on Fox News, some general got up there and said, we're looking for them to hit sometime in the next four weeks. They're going to do it when the nation's got a lame duck president because, you know, politically, it's going to be the end of everything, and they don't want to have, they don't want to have. You know why they're doing it? Because Obama now wants to, first thing he's going to do in office is sit down with this guy and have direct talks. And Israel isn't going to put up for that because they know what's down the line, and they know now, and they're coming to the conclusion that they're going to have to stand on their own. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, Israel will stand on their own. You know why? Because they always have been on their own. They're used to it. But if that wasn't enough, we didn't have all that facing us. I'll tell you why, economically, this country is shot. You know why? Because the automakers went last week with a hat in their hand. We just gave them $21 billion. Now they want more. The banking industry destroyed everything and ruined everything and put the economy in a mess. We gave them a $700 billion bailout, and now they're saying it ain't enough. You know why it ain't enough? You know why it'll never be enough? Because if you keep giving people the answer to their problems without having them be accountable to fix their problems, it's money down a hole. This country isn't going to learn anything. You know why God leaves some issues in your life? So you'll learn by your mistakes. 
You know why I preach to you the way I do? So you identify those problems in your life, you get honest with yourself, and then you deal with them so you can move up to the next level and get past it. That's why God doesn't take it away just like that. That's why God allows you to struggle. He wants to see if you're honest. He wants to see if you're just going to be honest with everything that He does. That's what He wants. He wants to see how you're going to do it. He wants to see if you're going to give him lip service with your mouth and then say something else with your tongue. Oh, yeah. You know what? You're not in charge anymore. You want everything to happen right now. I want everything to happen right right now. Oh, I know what we want to do. We want to sow our wild oats and then we're all going to pray for crop failure. See? No, no, no. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. And sometimes it takes a long time to clean up the mess. Well, we want it like that, and we want to order God around to do it right now. But that's what happens when we're in charge. You know what? If God came down and fixed every problem you got right now, and every problem I got right now, we'd never learn a thing from it. You know why this country is doomed economically? You know, I, your 401Ks, I don't know if you got yours yet. I told you a couple of weeks ago we got one and mine lost $12,000. I got one yesterday. Mine now has lost, and counting the 12 last time, $45,000. And that's pretty good for me because I only had 10 bucks in it anyhow. I got me confused with somebody else. <laughs> I just hope it stays and comes back. You know, what, you know why this country is doomed if no other reason? If the Antichrist wasn't on the scene and it wasn't the end of the world and we weren't there and the trouble in the Middle East and all of this stuff, and oh, hey, somebody, and I don't know who you are, somebody is sending our Thursday night CDs to Fox News. Thank you. I don't know who's doing it. They're now using our Thursday night Bible study as a critique of world events. What did I tell you last week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? I told you that Israel was going to whack Iran before the president got in. And this morning on Fox News, some general got up there and said, we're looking for them to hit sometime in the next four weeks. They're going to do it when the nation's got a lame duck president because, you know, politically, it's going to be the end of everything, and they don't want to have, they don't want to have. You know why they're doing it? Because Obama now wants to, first thing he's going to do in office is sit down with this guy and have direct talks. And Israel isn't going to put up for that because they know what's down the line, and they know now, and they're coming to the conclusion that they're going to have to stand on their own. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, Israel will stand on their own. You know why? Because they always have been on their own. They're used to it. But if that wasn't enough, we didn't have all that facing us. I'll tell you why, economically, this country is shot. You know why? Because the automakers went last week with a hat in their hand. We just gave them $21 billion. Now they want more. The banking industry destroyed everything and ruined everything and put the economy in a mess. We gave them a $700 billion bailout, and now they're saying it ain't enough. You know why it ain't enough? You know why it'll never be enough? Because if you keep giving people the answer to their problems without having them be accountable to fix their problems, it's money down a hole. This country isn't going to learn anything. 
You know why God leaves some issues in your life? So you'll learn by your mistakes. You know why I preach to you the way I do? So you'll identify those problems in your life. You'll get honest with yourself, and then you'll deal with them so you can move up to the next level and get past it. That's why God doesn't take it away just like that. That's why God allow you to struggle. He wants to see if you're honest. He wants to see if you're just going to be honest with everything that he does. That's what he wants. He wants to see how you're going to do it. He wants to see if you're going to give him lip service with your mouth and then say something else with your tongue. Oh, yeah. You're not in charge anymore, friend. When you start dealing with people, some of you folks that work with me in counseling, when you start working with people, you see this in a very clear way. I don't put up with it for five seconds. You'll find people that'll come in and they'll, they'll cry great crocodile tears and they'll say, oh, I'm ready to do this, I'm ready to do that. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Why, we, we had a gal call last week. Uh, Mark, we had a girl, I got a girl call me last week and she says, oh, she says, I need help so bad. I'll do everything, I'll do anything, I'll do anything. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I said, okay. So I got a hold of Mark. Mark ran over and saw her. We got her set up and it wasn't 20 minutes later. You got a better deal someplace. No, I love all of you. Can I just say this? Can I speak the truth in love? I love you all. But this, if you're ever going to get into ministry, you need to learn this. You need to learn what I'm about to tell you. It's not a bad thing. Don't take it bad. Doesn't mean I don't love you. Doesn't mean I wouldn't die for it. Doesn't mean you can't have my time. But I've been in this business for 40, almost 40 years. And I know it's ins and outs. I know it better than I know anything else in my life. And I, this, I've come to this conclusion. So don't take this personal. When you sit in my office and you cry big crocodile tears and you flap them gums about what you're going to do for God, just like this kid on the phone. She was crying so loud, I could hold the phone out here and still hear every word she said. In fact, just for a test, because she went on for 20 minutes, I asked the stranger, would you hold this here? I backed off 50 feet. You can still hear it. I'm not impressed, nor do I necessarily believe what you tell me. I only believe what you show me. I've been lied to by more people than anybody in this whole planet. I hear it all week long. I hear this when you're really going to do this. I hear that when you're going to do something else. I've had them sit in my office and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to do that. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And two weeks later, they're right back out again. I have come to the conclusion that I don't believe anything anybody says to me. I only believe what I see you do. I'm safe there. See? You know why? Because people will flatter you with their lips, lie to you with their tongue. You do it to God. Remember that thing we read back there in, in Psalm 77 or 78? If you do it to Him... You think you wouldn't do it to me? You ain't in charge anymore. I'll tell you the second thing. Oh, I ain't done with the first one yet. <clears throat> you see this when you start working with people. They're going to tell you something, and then, like this lady, we started talking to her, and then the moment we got something set up, she was going to tell us how it went. Like she's the expert. I mean, she's got problems up the kazoo and got more problems than Carter's got liver pills, and now she's going to sit there and she's going to tell me how she's going to, what she is. What she, I said, lady, I said, you know what? God bless you. God bless you. Just go on and see yourself someplace else. You know what? I don't want you, you're not in charge anymore. You're, you're being in charge of got you in this mess. Someplace in your life, you've got to come to the end of self and say, I'm done. I'm done with me because me is me. You've got to say, Lord, take it over. Take it over. Now, the second thing. 
Sometimes you don't get your prayers answered, and I don't get my prayers answered because God, He wants to see how sincere we are. He wants to see if we're, if we're really, really, really sincere. One of my greatest verses in the Bible, and I have it etched in my heart, is simply this. A lack of planning on your part doesn't necessitate an emergency on my part. You say, that ain't in the Bible. Oh, yeah, it is. You just don't know where it's at. Another favorite verse of mine, and, and, uh, and I tell you all the time, and it's in there, and you never find it. It's not in there in exactly the same word, but it's in there in concept. And I, it's, I, I live by it. it. It runs like this. He that sits by the, on the riverbank long enough will watch the body of his enemy float by. That's in Proverbs. That's in Proverbs. It's so true. That's why you don't have to, you don't have to react when somebody does something to you. you in God's timing, you've got to learn to wait on God, and prayer is where you learn to wait on God. And sometimes God wants to see how sincere we are. He wants to see if we're just, we're in a panic mode. He wants to see if we're really assessing the situation. Third thing is sometimes we don't get our prayers answered because God wants to show us how helpless we really are without Him. You know what I believe? I really believe that when we get to heaven, there'll be things that God wanted to do with you and I that He couldn't do because we were too strong. You see, God uses us best when we're in our weakness. And sometimes not getting your prayer answered and not getting what you want when you want it in a time of a dire need or a tire straight is when God can use you at your best. But because we're, it's all about us, isn't it? It's all about us. It's all about what we have, what, we, what we're going through. It's not about what anybody else is going through. It's all about where I'm at. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, talking about the great Laodicean church where you and I are at. He says in that verse, talking about that church, that church stating, I am rich and increased with goods. And the church states, and I have need of nothing, including God. And that's where we're at today. We're in it. We are the Laodicean church. We're in it. And the attitude of Christians is, I've got everything I want. And maybe when you understand why we are the way we are because of all we have, maybe you understand the only way sometimes God can get your attention is by taking it all away. Let me ask you a question. When you're a parent and you've got a little child, and that little child has a toy that he's playing with and he's hurting others with it or he's doing what he shouldn't do with it, what do you do with it? I'm sorry? Uh, uh, excuse me. I'm, I, I got, you know what? In, in the war, a grenade went off, rolled over here and blew this eardrum out, and a bullet went through this side and came out the other side. I don't hear very well. What was that again? Oh, okay. Take it away. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things unto that ask him? If you can figure that out, you think God can't? Are you his children? Aren't I his child? Okay. When you get something and he gives you all these things and you start playing with it and you start putting it more important to him and you start fighting over it, now it's mine, now it's mine, now it's mine. What, God, what, what good parent wouldn't come down and say, let me have it, let me have it. See how easy life is when you just get back to the book? That's where it's at. That's where it's at. Now, don't misunderstand me. I like strong people, spiritually strong. 
I like disciplined people. I can't stand undisciplined people. I, undisciplined people, I just, I mean, I love them, but I mean, I just, it, it, it just drives me nuts. I, I can't stand people who aren't, have, have self-discipline. I, I just can't. I, I just can't. I mean, I, I like strong people. I like people who have strong convictions. I like people who, who are resolved. You can, they're, they're, they're disciplined. They're self-disciplined. But all of those things can be a problem for you. Now, we don't have any what I would classify rich people in this church. But you know what riches does? Riches obscures faith with God because when you can buy your way out of anything, you don't need God. And we live in a society in the latest in church as Christians where we have everything we want. We don't need God. You know where God in the 20th century has really flourished and really been strong and powerful? It's been in the countries like Korea. Countries like, well, it's not a country, but it's a continent, Africa. Places where they don't have anything. And all they have is God. Places like China, where the communists come in and, and the, by the collective good, take everything that you have and give you back what they think you should have. It's places like Russia under Stalin and soon to be under Putin, where they take everything you got and tell you and give you back what they think you should have. And you don't have the luxury of a plasma TV. You don't have the luxury of all the things that we have. You don't have the luxury many times of having a bathroom inside. You don't have the luxury of having lights on 24-7. Electricity is on only certain times of the day and never at night. There's an advantage to being in a situation where we don't have all that we have because the things that we have make us self-sufficient that we don't even need God. You know what, as a Christian, this is what I look for. I look for men and women that are self-reliant but not self-sufficient. I look for men and women that are steadfast, but not stubborn. I look for men and women that are unmovable, but never stationary. I look for men and women that have come to the end of self, that in the midst of everything that we have, everything we have, we realize that nothing is more important than God. I'm reminded of a little kid years ago, somebody told me this story. Yeah, a little five-year-old kid, I always think of, you know, I don't know why I do this. I always think of Jack when I, hear, when I, when I tell this story. It was somebody just like Jack. You know, Jack's all boy. But, you know, I watch these little kids pray, and I watch when you guys, we go out to eat, and you have your kids pray, and how sweet it is, and, and how you tell me they pray. And I, well, this little kid was about five or six years old. And his mom, his mom and it, it says it all, and his mom and dad, you know, took him in the same good bed, and you know how the kids go. And kids pray for the great, greatest stuff. I mean, they're praying for their puppy, they're praying for their goldfish, they're praying for their turtle, you know, they're praying for mom and uncle and everybody, you know. And, and they, 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 haven't, they haven't learned to make enemies yet. They even pray for people that you don't like sometimes, you know. I mean, the purity of a child, you know. And this little kid, you know, mom and dad put him in there. He's down here, and he's praying, you know, the bed, down on his knees there. Oops, sorry about that, Pat and Sonia. And he's down there, and he's saying, Dear Lord, he says, Now please bless Mommy and bless Daddy and bless my brother and my sister. And Lord, bless the little puppy we have and bless the, the, the goldfish and bless Aunt so-and-so and, and Uncle Tom and bless this and bless that and, and bless Mommy and Dad. You know how they do the same thing five or six times? They want to make sure they get through, you know. And bless Mom and they bless Dad and bless all of that. And, uh, and in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> oh, yeah, Lord. And take care of yourself, too, because if anything happens to you, we're shot. 
That's the truth. That's the truth. That's the truth. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayer in the time that we think that He should because He wants to show us how helpless we are without Him. I'll tell you the next thing, number four. Sometimes we don't get our prayer answered the way we want until we get the selfish motive out of our lives. See, we like to use prayer as an ordering form. It's all about us. The real child of God, you know, I saw a bumper sticker. I see it quite often. You know, it was, used to be big back in the 70s. Now it's kind of coming back again. It was a bumper sticker that said, prayer changes things. You know that's not true? You know, that's about as big as lies you could ever concoct and put on a bumper sticker. I like the one much better that says, kill them all, let God sort them out. I think that's much more biblical. You know, prayer, you know, when somebody says, well, prayer changes things, you know that's not true? You know, right now, you, could, you see peace bumper stickers. I just bumper sticker another fair. It says, pray for the peace in Jerusalem. And you can stay up all night long and all day tomorrow and the rest of your life and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There ain't going to be any peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace comes back. A lot of two biggest wars you ever saw in your life still yet to come about Jerusalem. Maybe three. You know what I'm saying to you? The older you get, and I know you're not here right now, most of you. I don't think any of you probably maybe are. But you know what? The older you get in the Lord, and the more you learn those principles, and the more you learn about God, and the more you do and learn and get through your infirmities, and the more you build a relationship with God, like Song of Solomon. You know what you learn in time? You learn as a child of God, there's some things that you have a right to ask God to change, and then there's some things in your life you don't have a right to ask God to change. Did you know that? And if sitting here this morning, you don't know what they are, you need to find out in time. I'm not castigating you. Uh, most of you probably are not ready to understand that yet. God takes you where you're at and deals with you in the attitude of your heart because God understands we're all flesh. But I'm going to tell you something. There's some things as a child of God, you don't have a right to ask God to change. We think prayer is our way in to get God to change his mind so it lines up with ours. Where does that come from? God has a sovereign will. God has a sovereign plan. And many times he allows things to come into our life that aren't pleasant things or things to our life that, that we've caused or maybe sometimes we haven't caused them. Or maybe sometimes we get this or we get this or we, something happens here. And you know what? Our first thing is we'll go to prayer and we'll ask God to change that. Why? Because I don't like that. You don't have that right in everything in your life. The mark of a mature child of God, as far as I'm concerned, the mark of a mature child of God, male or female, is a child of God who understands in their relationship with God and their prayer life what you have a right to ask God for and to change and what you don't. But sometimes we have to get the selfish motive out of our lives. We think prayer is, you know, we, we think prayer is, is asking God what we, want, what we want and what we want to change because I don't like it. That's not true. Then the fifth thing. The fifth thing. Sometimes when God refuses our prayer, it's not always a permanent thing. You know, continued prayer, just like in our story in, in Matthew chapter 15, the lady didn't get weaker, she got stronger. It forced her, if you're paying attention, it forced her to into the Bible. She started out coming to him saying, Oh, thou Lord, thou son of David. And then by the time she got done, she was in the Bible quoting him an Old Testament passage, not directly, but certainly indirectly. She's holding him accountable to the promise of the Word of God. Sometimes when you don't get what you want the way you want it, sometimes that strengthens your relationship with God because that's what God intends for it to do. You see, we look at because it's us, because it's all about us, because it's self. Because it's me and you. 
because it's what we want and we're so selfish and we're so spoiled and we're so, we're so caught up in all this stuff. We just can't simply see beyond the fact that I don't know why I didn't get what I want when God asked God, why didn't he do that? But maybe he's got something else other in mind that we never see. So, many times it has to do with your attitude. Many times it has to do with the fact that you and I, we, we struggle with, um, we don't see what God's doing. You know, I look at that chart back there. And you know, when you stop and look at it, I know you can't see it, and don't turn your neck around, but back there in that last church period, it's called Laodicea. Now, I ain't measured that sucker yet, but I look from out here, I bet that, that green line there that says Laodicea is probably about, oh, foot and a half long. You know how long that whole chart is? That chart is 48 feet. That 48-foot chart represents from God what he did at the beginning and what he's going to do at the end and everything in between. You know, just like that chart, you know what we do sometimes? We focus on the two and a half feet that matters to us and never see the whole chart of what God's doing on the whole picture of things. Sometimes God has a bigger picture and we don't see it because all we see is self. Well, Bible says we have an infirmity and that infirmity is we don't know how to pray. We've talked about two of them today. Going to hold up there and we come back next week. We're going to talk about the third infirmity and we're going to tie it all together and, and put it all in there and show you that if you work on these things and you attack these things, you will get the victory in your life of what God wants you to do. Now, let me just say this to you. I'm here to help you any way I can. Wherever you're at in your own personal life, wherever you're at in what you're trying to accomplish for God, if it isn't working for you, probably a reason or two behind that with where it's going folks I've never felt the burden in all my life I'm just going to be honest with you my job as a pastor is to is to evangelize it's to edify you to strengthen you to be your leader to be your shepherd to teach you the Bible to feed the flock but my job is also to prepare you and I'm telling you right now and I don't say this to scare you because it doesn't matter to me what happens. If you know how to trust God, God will take care of you through the bad times just like he will the good times. I look at the impending things that are going to hit this country in the next two or three years if Jesus doesn't come. And you know what? As much as I talk about them, as much as I lay them out, it doesn't phase me one bit. And I don't say it out there to scare you. I say it out there that you need to get to the place in your life where you realize that God is the God in the good times and he's the God of the bad times. Somebody says, well, what do you think will happen to my kids or what do you think it will happen to this? What will happen to that? I don't know the answers to all that. I just know this. He promised he'd never leave us nor forsake us. He said that greater is he that's in me that's in the world. That's all I need. That's all I need. And as long as we're doing what's right as a church, as long as we're doing what's right as Christians, how we are being faithful and holding this thing out and doing what we need to do no matter how bad it gets, you know what? He will take care of everything for us and no matter how bad it gets. Did you ever notice, did you ever notice that when the plagues came down on the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 12, or excuse me, when Moses called down the plagues on, on Pharaoh, did you ever notice that the plagues fell on everywhere except where the children of Israel were? Did you ever notice that? 
You ever notice in the tribulation period when God brings the plagues and all the things talked about over there in the book of Revelation that it falls on everybody in the world except where the nation of Israel is? You know why? Because God made a promise that he was going to preserve his people. And in the same sense, spiritually, no matter how bad it gets, no matter where it goes, no matter how black it may get, or may, what may happen in this world, or what we may lose, or what we may have, you know what they can't take from you? They can't take this book from you. And they can't take what you've got in your heart. That's why I'm telling you why you still can. You better listen to me. I'm your best friend. Why you still can. You better hide that word in your heart. You better get it now. You better get something in the storehouse before winter comes. You better get something in your life, and you better get somebody in your life that can help you put it together and help you get it there. You better quit playing games and fooling around and then wanting up some morning when it hits you like a ton of bricks and say, oh, now what am I going to do? Too little, too late. This church is here for you. It's your lifeboat. We together and this book can get through anything that comes as long as we stay true to God and the Word of God. And that's where we're at. So don't get down about it. I say it all the time. You got a front row seat to the end of the world. Enjoy it. I'd rather have this ticket than to the Super Bowl. This is the greatest thing you're ever going to see in your life. We're going to witness the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to be right in the front of it. And I can't tell you. I can't tell you. Yeah, the only other time I can even think about would be more exciting would be just standing out there that early morning when the fog was still on the ground about 4.30 in the morning and we're all lined up there at that tomb, that big old rock that the Roman soldiers put up there and we're just waiting there, you know, and I can just see it right now. We all got our little old past coffee mugs, drinking our coffee, you know, <laughs> checking it out, sitting down there, everybody being quiet and Pam begin to talk and shut up, Pam, we're going to get it. the holy moment, you know, and just sitting right there and all of a sudden, about 5.30, nothing. About quarter to six, nothing. About five to six, not a thing. The birds begin to chirp, and the little light begins to crack on the, on the horizon. Then at six o'clock, somebody says, what's that? We hear a little rumble. We hear something begin to creak, and then that rock rolls away, and out he stands. Out he walks. What the greatest time in the history of the world was the day he walked out of that tomb. And I'll tell you what. Because he walked out of that tomb, he saved me. He's in me and I'm in him. As far as I'm concerned, I wasn't there for that one. But I'm not going to miss the next one. He's coming. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you.